Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. We're living in a season, a time when there's global, global concern everywhere. There's great fear right now. There's uncertainty, there's devastation that has been caused by a virus. It's global, it's real. Travel has been radically uh, reduced. People who were on cruises, maybe uh, going to have the time of their life, and it ended up being the worst time of their life. Quarantines have been widespread, fear is mounting. Some have tragically died. Stock markets plunging. Because of the uncertainty, because of the fear. How do we as believers function? How are we to respond? The scripture that will be a theme for us throughout this series over the next four weeks, 1 John 4.18, the same author that is the author of John's gospel also wrote in his epistles this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Would you rather do what you do, whatever it is, fixing a meal, serving at your job, giving in an offering, singing, serving in the nursery, shoveling snow. Would you rather serve out of fear, afraid of what will be said if you don't do whatever it is, or out of love, an offering of love? Perfect love casts out fear. So what does it look like for a Christian to live boldly? Perhaps something that comes to your mind is, okay, so we're being taught and we're going to live boldly. What does this look like? Are we supposed to get sandwich boards and paint scripture sayings and and different religious sayings and take to the nearest corner and begin to shout at people angry things? Is that what it looks like? Is that what we're being called to do? No. No. We might be confused and a little upside down of what it really means to live boldly for Christ. And I would like to suggest to us throughout this study that living boldly for Christ is taking opportunities. It's taking risks. Listen to me now. To pray with your loved ones. To pray with people where you serve. When you're prompted by the Spirit, this person is going through a valley. This person is going through a trial. And I want to help them. I want to be a blessing. But my resources and my pockets aren't that deep. But I can take their hand and go to the throne of the Creator. And I'll risk to do just that. This is boldness. To serve faithfully in the local church with a humble attitude. To forgive those who trespass against you. To take a meal to someone who is in need. To clearly share the message of the gospel with someone and it may risk your relationship with them. This is what it is to live boldly. 
even if we're out of step with our culture, especially when and if it ever comes where it's contrary to the law of the land, that we've been living boldly. And as we look at the four different individuals in the Gospel of John, they're radically different. None of them, except maybe John the Baptist, woke up with the plan of, I'm going to live boldly for God today. And we'll see John the Baptist hit a real low point in life. Each of the four individuals that we see in John's Gospel they come into contact, their encounter with Jesus Christ changes everything about them. This isn't a message to pump you, to pump me up, to guilt trip, trip us into doing something, but it is a call for us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit and live with abandon in the radical love and grace of Jesus Christ. To not play it so safe that we're not used by the mighty hand of God to bring revival into the lives of the people that we come into contact with. Paul, the apostle, came to the place where his reverential fear of God displaced every fear of man. He didn't care what people thought anymore. That's hard for us. That's hard for me. We studied Galatians 1.10. If I ever choose to risk the pain of a tattoo, this is going to be the verse. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul came to the place where he didn't care what anybody thought about him except what the Lord thinks. It changed his life. In Romans 1.16, he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He said, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And there are some of us here today, if we're honest, we say, I, I still struggle with this. I struggle with putting my faith out there, putting the gospel out there talking with people, having the conversations with people. I'm waiting, but waiting for what? Waiting how long? At what year or decade will it become comfortable for us to live boldly in the love and grace of Christ and see God use us and make a difference in the... Do we really believe that people will spend eternity in heaven or hell? Then when... Will that boldness come into our lives as a people of God that doesn't manifest as anger, hatred, condescending, judgment, meanness, but grace, love, mercy, and clear speaking the truth? How did Paul get to this point? He shares behind it the, what is under this attitude, Acts 20 and verse 24, and this is where, this is where he laid it all on the line. He said, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God.
That is a mountain of a verse, isn't it? I don't count my life dear to me. There's something greater. It's not precious. But here's what was precious to Paul. That I may finish my course. And the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's my prayer. A lot of people start well. They begin well. But to finish, to finish strong. As we look at these individuals in the gospel of John, a little bit about the author, John the Apostle ended up being the last living apostle of Jesus. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. See where the, the, the power is there? It's not the disciple who loved Jesus. It's the disciple that Jesus loved. What changed John from the son of thunder into the apostle of love? It was Jesus. He would tell you, and one day, if you belong to Christ, you can ask him yourself, what changed you? And he will tell you, and you can check, it on, check me on this in heaven. I'm going to go down with the answer is, survey says, he's going to respond with, look at the lamb. Jesus, he changed me. He's the author of the gospel of John. It's the last, uh, uh, the gospel that was written. It was written later, Matthew, Mark, Luke. There's no, there's no birth narrative in John's gospel. He's writing to demonstrate the deity of Christ. The God in flesh, the second person of the triune God was co-equal with the Father. There's three epistles that bear his name written to first century Christians. And then the last book that you hold in, the, in your Bible is the book of Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And John penned that book. He saw the Lord. We're going to look at these four different individuals. They're very different. Each person in a different way lived boldly for Jesus. Each one of them encountered the living Christ and their lives were never the same. And they would all say with one song, it's all about Jesus. It's not what would Jesus do, it's what Jesus did. That was a popular bracelet, it's just missing. Well, Jesus would walk on water, can you do that? No. Jesus would heal the dead, give sight to the blind, can you do that? No. So it's not always about what would Jesus do and then you operate. You can't do what Jesus did and nor can I. It's about who is Jesus, what did he do, and what are his demands, what are his claims on my life and on your life? How does the love of Jesus transform a social outcast? We're going to see this unfold this morning in John chapter 4. The first 15 verses we see that Jesus finds people in need of love. He finds people in need of love. That's what Jesus does. He does not wait for us to come to him. He seeks the lost. He goes after us. John chapter four, verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Here's the explanation. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus finds people in need of love. Perhaps you remember back in 2007, there was a drought, severe drought across the south. I had some pictures the, across Texas, the southern states, and I remember one news story that was when the Georgia Bulldogs were gathering to play football when they gathered in the, the Superdome, wherever, I think it was the Superdome, they had monitors in the restrooms to make sure that the toilets were not flushed because they didn't have the water. It was so serious. And if you remember, the news articles, the media, the governor of Georgia called for fasting and prayer and was mocked, was laughed at, in the, in the, was laughed to scorn. People fasted and prayed, and it rained, and the news story disappeared. Imagine how that happens, right? Who would think? Happens all the time. There were pictures of people that, oh, oh, uh, you know, aerial views of a lake. They had a lakefront property, only it turned into beachfront, only being a beach, mud front. And their boats were just in the mud. Their docks were dry. There was no water. Little ponds left of lakes. There was so much a lack of water back in that drought. How long can a person survive without food? Not long. But you can go about 21 days. How, how long can you survive without water? Not nearly as long. It's actually about 100 hours that you can go without water. You have to have water. Some of you will remember in Australia not long ago, these fires that were going across and these scenes. How can you stand these firefighters trying to battle these fires? They're horrific. The heat, the intensity. Why? There was no rain. There was no moisture. 
When you stop and think about how can we stand against the forces of nature that are under the control and the authority of the word of God, we can't stand against the cold. We can't stand against the wind. We can't stand against the altitude. We can't stand against the fire. We can't last in the depths of his ocean, but yet we are so self-sufficient. What if God purposed all of these things to just show us you can't do it on your own? Look to the one who made it all and gave his son. Back to John's gospel, the fourth chapter, Jesus is on a mission trip. He has ministry to accomplish. He's traveling from Jerusalem. That's where the Pharisees were getting all worked up. He makes his way to Galilee. The trip is about 68 miles. That's about the distance from Richmond to Flint. Anybody want to take that journey by foot this week? Nope, I don't. About halfway, we find this village in Samaria and this well, and Jesus has a plan. But here's here's the catch. Jewish people in that day did not walk the shortcut. They would go down and around, and they would go around a bypass. All right, y'all know what it is to a bypass. If you ever travel around Cincinnati, wow, that's a bypass. You're in, what, three states, you know, traveling around one city? Well, this is what Jewish people would do because they so hated the Samaritans. They would put themselves at risk They would take the extra distance in travel because they so despised the people that lived in the direct route that they would go around, avoid. Jesus says, I'm not avoiding. I'm not going around. I have an appointment with a woman in the middle of the barren land, in the middle of the forbidden land. That's where I'm going. And his disciples were probably saying, oh, great. Really? We're going to have to get food in there. We're going to have, there's no rest stops that we can, that are kosher. What are we going to do? They're with Jesus. They're on this trip. Samaritans, if you don't know who these people are, they're racially mixed people. They came about in the Old Testament time when Assyria invaded the northern kingdom, right? There was the split after the first three kings. You had Saul, David, Solomon, and then comes the fourth king, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the the people of the land say, what kind of a king are you going to be? And he takes the counsel from the older men, and the older men say, listen, if you loosen up from your father's reign, and you're gracious and you're kind, then the people are going to love you, they're going to serve you, and they're going to be loyal to you. And he says, thank you for your advice. And then Rehoboam says, hey, buddies, my friends, my peers, come, what do you think I should do? Oh, man, you need to be your own man. You need to, you need to you let people know that you are the king now. It's you in charge. And, and so he comes out with his message, you know, uh, my strength is, is going to make my pinky like my father's thigh. And the whole 10 tribes of the north said, see ya, deuce, we're out, peace, we're gone. He sent someone to collect taxes, they killed them. Don't send anybody to collect taxes from the 10 tribes of the north again. And so then Jeroboam, another king, raises up a places of worship in the northern part to say, you don't go to Jerusalem anymore. Here's two places you can worship out here, our way to God. And he comes up with false religion and it separates. There's this rift. The first kingdom to fall was the northern kingdom into the hand of Assyria. God's judgment came upon those northern 10 tribes. What happened was Assyria hauled people away and then they put their own people back in that northern land and they populated the land with a mixed race of people. 
So now the Gentiles don't like the Samaritans because they're part Jew and they hated the Jews. And the Jews don't like the Samaritans because they're part Gentile and they hated Gentiles. So now you have a people that's hated by everybody. And the woman that we meet in John 4 is at the bottom of the bottom because she's a woman and she's a Samaritan and she's an outcast. You'd be hard pressed to find anyone lower than she was. And yet Jesus breaks with all tradition. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care who sees him walking across that border. I've showed you before what a Jewish faithful Israelite would do when they would come back into Israel. They would take their sandals off and then once they crossed into the territory, they would take their sandals and they would knock off the foreign land's dirt. Like we don't want to pollute our own soil. They so detested those around them in such a way. And Jesus says, come on, we're walking through. Got an appointment today at high noon. And he goes. Jesus had no fear of confronting racial tension and ethnic issues. And beloved, listen, I don't know what kind of home you were raised in or what kind of view you have toward people whose skin color is different than yours. Detroit area, of those other nations where there's competition for the auto industry and how you think about people and how you view people and how you talk about people who are speaking other languages, isn't it easy to think we're better than them? Isn't it easy to look down your nose at other people who are different than you are? And Jesus walked right into it. 1963, Martin Luther King Famous speech, I have a dream. And what did he say? That he dreamed of a day when his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, let's take this a step further because the woman that Jesus meets at the well, this wouldn't be comforting to her. Not only is she an outcast, but her character is in the gutter. She's a nobody of the nobodies, except the Jesus. This woman stands out in the scripture for the person who's here today who thinks when they see in the mirror, a nobody. That you don't have this or you don't have that status, or wherever you may be in relationships, wherever you may be in life, don't miss this woman that Jesus had an appointment with. And he found her. Because that's what Jesus does. He finds people in need of love. And we all need love. And he is seeking Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. He experienced fatigue because he was a man. Yes, he was God, but he was also human. He needed water. He needed rest. We see him. We find him sitting at this well. It's about high noon. There he is at Jacob's well outside of the city of Sychar. So much history happened in this very place. And here comes a woman. She's coming alone. 
She didn't come at the time when all the other ladies came to the well. They would either come early in the morning or they'd come late in the evening or in the cool of the evening. Here she comes and she's trying to avoid all the people at all costs. She didn't want to see. She didn't want to talk to anybody. She was hiding in isolation. And I know that there are some in this room and some who were in the first service and some who will listen to this message that isolation to you seems more a friend than people feels safer. It feels like I, it, it's under your control. feels like I can, I can have all of my life organized away and I'm isolated. This is this woman. It's a strong temptation to stay away from everyone, to stay away from the people who love you, who want to help you, and you just keep putting up walls. You live with the the notion that you don't want your weaknesses exposed, your blemishes unveiled, and maybe you know what it's like to, to try to hold our younger generation. They want everything presented in social media so it looks as best as possible, the best angle, the best everything, so that people will not think less of us, we hope, than what we ought to be thought of. Our family's serious about this. I'll take pictures. Like, wait, wait, wait. Let me see that before you post it. Don't post that. Bad angle. A few years ago, there was a picture that was, you know, on Facebook. It said, post a picture of somebody that you look like. So I posted this picture. Yeah, right there. (laughs) And the funniest thing, I don't know if I've told you this before, but Ginger's mom saw this picture on my profile and she said, Ginger, what is that picture of Brian? And Ginger said, Mom, that, first of all, that's not Brian. That's Robert Downey Jr. And that's his mugshot. This is when he was in a real bad point in life. <laughs> this is when he was arrested, and they, don't do, they help you none, okay? You're a mugshot. Celebrities are used to having the whole photo shoot and the right angle and lighting and everything, the best photographer. And here's my, my headshot and release. Well, when you get arrested... I'm kind of thinking that the police officers who are in that little portion of the place, they kind of enjoy like, smile, ha ah, there you go, and release it. You know, here we go. We arrested this one. Look at that picture. Listen, I understand. We want to present, you know, we prepared ourselves this morning. We went before the mirror and did some work. We made the best of what we could with what we're working with, Right? But listen, there's such a temptation to live in isolation. Think about this woman. What do you think was going through her mind when she saw this Jewish carpenter, this teacher sitting by the well? She didn't want to see him. Oh, great. There's somebody sitting at the well. I thought I picked the off hours. You know what it is to go to Kroger at the wrong time? You can't get out. Like, oh, man. And then you pick that line. Oh, I should have picked the other line. This line, 14 more coupons, really? Right? You know what I mean? This lady is, there's going to be nobody at the well, and there's a guy sitting there, and as she gets a little closer, it's worse than a guy. It's a Jewish man. A Jewish carpenter is sitting in my way. Well, maybe he'll just let me get my water and get out of there. Did he really just ask me for a drink? This is such a real situation. When Jesus asked her for a drink from her pitcher, this was unheard of. 
We're familiar with our history as a nation in the South, that if someone who was of a different race would use a drinking fountain, how dare you, that's for whites only. Your drinking fountain is somewhere else. And that's how this was. That a Jewish man, if, if the woman would have simply touched his water pot, if he had one, he would say, I'm breaking this. I'm never using this. Because you, you filthy, vile woman, you touched my water pot and you've ruined it. And Jesus says to her, can I have a drink? And she looks at him like, with what? What do you have to get a drink with? From your picture. He's shattering all the stereotypes. He's shattering all the customs. This is unheard of. Most Jewish men, this woman was unclean, but Jesus didn't care. And her picture wasn't going to make him unclean because he was God in flesh. And he was coming to wash her soul. Jesus valued this woman. She was confused. Who are you? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus offers to her water that was living. And she says, that has my attention. Can I buy that? How do I have that? How can I have water? So hopefully I'll never have to come to this dreadful well and never have to endure the look of some other woman in my face again. Gloating over me, glaring at me, hating me. Some of you know what that feels like. Jesus cares. And he found her. Secondly, Jesus tells the truth in love. He tells the truth in love. And we see in verse 16, Jesus said to her, okay, at this point up to here, it's been awkward. It's been a little difficult conversation. Not normal. The lady would never have thought, today I'm going to have a conversation with a Jewish carpenter at a well. That's what I'm going to do today. Nope. So Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Do you wonder how she said that? <clears throat> I have no husband. Think she said it like that? I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. So let's talk about my painful life. Now, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. You think? It's Jesus right there, the Savior. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus tells the truth in love. Jesus moves the conversation from the natural realm into the spiritual realm with one request. Go get your husband. 
in these cultures and in many cultures today, marriage was for the benefit of the families, not for love, not for romance, not for happiness, surely not for the fulfillment and joy of the young lady. Recently, I watched a documentary of, of the, the, the sex trafficking going on in Iraq. And I watched in a courtroom a man who was marrying off his 15-year-old daughter. And the judge was asking the man the question, are you sure about this? You're marrying your 15-year-old daughter to this adult man. And he laughed, this father laughed, saying, if we wait until she's 18, she won't be worth anything. No one will want her. It was like property. It made me think a little bit differently of what went into this lady. What went into the five failed marriages, or was it failed marriages, or was it husbands that had passed away? What left her in a condition of being of no value except to some man that wouldn't even marry her? Wouldn't man up and provide for her and just simply wanted to use her? Go get my water. And Jesus is sitting with her. And Jesus is speaking to her, talking with her, loving her, confronting her in her sin, but doing it so lovingly. She's caught. I have no husband. She had five. Now she's living with a man. They're functioning like they're married, but they're not married. Destroys you from the inside out, beloved. Sin always does. The woman tries to sidestep the question, hey, uh, where should we worship? This is getting a little, a little hot noon. I mean, it was warm, but woo, the temperature went up a little. Are we supposed to worship on our hill or over there in Jerusalem on your hill? And this is, she's identifying a question that was historic. It was old, an old debate that when they came back from the exile that I told you about a little bit ago, when they came back, they rebuilt the temple. And we're going to see that Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple. And the Samaritan people said, can we help? You ever had a child come and say, can I help you mow the grass? Can I help you in the kitchen? Like, no, no, I'm too busy. Get out of here. You'll make a mess. And they're crushed. The Samaritans, can we help you build the temple? And they said, no, get out of here, you defiled people. So they built their own temple on a hillside out in Samaria, and that, that temple was destroyed. It was leveled. So when Jesus was there, and still to this day, there's just rocks scattered on a hillside where the Samaritans are waiting for a deliverer. And Jesus cuts right through it. And he foretells that pretty soon the temple in Jerusalem is going to be leveled and no one's going to worship there. And no one's going to worship here as the only right place to worship. It's right to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then Jesus makes this most unusual revelation to this woman when, she, when he says to her, he says, I who speak to you am he. She says, we're waiting on Messiah. We know that Messiah comes. And when Messiah comes, he's going to tell all things. It's God in flesh. He's the anointed one. He's the one we're waiting for. We're waiting on a deliverer. And Jesus says here to this woman, think about this, get your mind around this, what he didn't say to the religious elite in Jerusalem. 
He didn't say, and sometimes cults will take that against scripture and they'll say, no, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's a good prophet, a good teacher, but you cannot worship him as God because he never stood up in Jerusalem and said, I am God. He just did things that God can do, raise the dead to life, walk on water, calm storms, cast out demons with no contest at all, give sight to the blind, feed 5,000, command fish, Authority over nature, over sickness, over death, over hell, over everything. That's what God does. Knowing the thoughts of people, that's what God does. That's what Jesus did. But he doesn't reveal this in Jerusalem. He goes out to this woman who's at the bottom of all societies. And he says to her, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm sharing with you, no one values you in this entire world except the God who spoke the world into existence. And I came to meet with you right now. He called her out of her sin. He loved her and spoke the truth to her. He shared with her the greatest message of all time, that God has come to bridge the gap between you, the sinner, and him, the perfect and holy triune God. And Jesus came and said, I love you. Now, if you're trying to build a religion, you're trying to get a following of people, this isn't your, your primo witness nor are the shepherds at the birth, nor is it the women at the tomb. This is how God ordained his plan of redemption in the gospel. The first witnesses. He tells this woman, I'm here. We see in the next section that Jesus changes everything by his love. So he speaks. He speaks the truth in love. He tells the truth, but he does it so lovingly. Jesus changes everything. Nothing about this woman's life is ever going to stay the same. Everything is upside down in this next scene, except Jesus. He's right on mission. Verse 27, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away to the town. And said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She asks a question. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, yes, Jimmy John's, they're faster than you. No, that's not what he said. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 
Everything is upside down here. The disciples are confused. They can't understand. Why is Jesus talking to this woman? Why is she here? What are we doing here? I told you we shouldn't even walk through here. The woman is overwhelmed by Jesus' love. She couldn't contain the good news. She forgot why she came there in the first place. First place. She was thirsty, needed water. She left her water pot and she makes her way back into the city. Her heavy burden of guilt and shame were lifted. She didn't have to live in the shadows of fear, of loss and rejection anymore because she met Jesus Messiah. And this individual knew her to the bottom and loved her to the top. He knew everything about her. Everything. He knows everything, everything about you and he loves you. This is agape love. This is love by choice. This isn't love waiting on something in return. This is divine love. And she knew the difference. You know what it is when you share information with someone or you share experiences with someone and then they reject you and walk away, how badly that hurts? To some degree, we've all experienced that. Some of you have experienced it more significantly and more severely than others in different ways. But can we all agree that in this woman we can see some common ground for the worst, the worst of abandonment, the worst of rejection, the worst of the worst of feeling unloved, forgotten, uncared for, and taking up space on planet earth. And Jesus says, I love you. I walk to you. This is amazing, the love of God. The town comes out. They're curious. We've got to find out what's going on here. If this was in today, she would have just gone Facebook Live, you know, Instagram video live. Here's a tweet out. I'm out here at the well. I just met a man. He's told me everything. You hear me, guys, in the town? Everything I ever did. And they came running. They came to find this encounter. Jesus was carrying out his father's mission obediently. He was hungry. And his, the disciples, they went to get that food. They come back. They can't understand. What are you, you're not hungry? And he's saying, this is more satisfying to me. What is happening in this woman's life is more satisfying to me than the sandwich that you brought me. Have you ever experienced that where you're hungry, but then something displaces your hunger? That's part of what fasting is that you go without a meal and something more substantive than food fills you up the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you haven't ever even experienced that. I haven't experienced that enough. Going without the temporal so that I have more of the eternal, the substantive. And here Jesus says, I don't need your food. You need to pay attention to how you should treat women and especially people of other cultures. Don't miss this lesson, boys. And they missed it then. But the Holy Spirit would remind them of it later and they would write it down and not portray themselves as, we, were, we weren't that bad. I mean, we were doing a pretty good job getting them some food. He portrays it as we were, we were way off. We messed it all together and Jesus didn't abandon us. He loved us to the very end. Jesus was so patient with these slow learning disciples. They were so slow to comprehend and listen to me. So am I. 
so am I. I wish I could learn things first time go around. That'd be great. But Jesus is patient. Jesus was guiding his men. Here's how you effectively minister the gospel of grace to all peoples. Last we see this. That Jesus uses, and you got to add that word in there, uses the useless to spread his love. Jesus uses the useless to spread his love. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And what was her testimony? All right, some of you are struggling. You struggle with, I don't know what I should say. I don't know what I would tell people. Uh, as soon as I get it all figured out and I get my three-point sermon, then I'll talk to my coworker. Here's her message. He told me all that I ever did. Think he's the Messiah? Do you understand why I said at the outset, boldness doesn't always look like yelling, angry, screaming guys in three-piece suits? Matter of fact, it looks a lot less like that now than when we started. This woman comes in and says, he told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, listen to their testimony of thankfulness. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, what do we all need? The Savior of the world. Jesus uses the useless to spread his love. Now, when we think about the word to be used, that Jesus uses the useless. It, it can easily bring with it a negative meaning, can it? If you think of it in a term of used a paper plate, used a Kleenex. Who wants my Kleenex? Nobody, right? <laughs> to use, there's, there, there can easily be a negative meaning there if we're thinking about, but we need to see it differently that if, let's say you're at a, at a ball game, go to the Tigers game, and, and one of the, the best Tiger players looks up, sees your kid in the stands, and says, hey, you got your glove? Yeah. Come on down. It's okay, security. Open the, open the gate. Let him in. Let him in. I want to warm up with, what's your name? And it's throwing the ball back and forth. That's great. What grade are you in? I'm using you to warm my arm up. It's very different than I can't do it without you. It's I want you to experience something that you aren't entitled to, but I want to give to you. Jesus comes to this woman and he says, I want to use you. She's been used her whole life, but not like this. Jesus says, I'm going to use you and I'm going to bring life and liberty to you and to your family and to your community. And the whole world is going to be talking about you for thousands of years, but not about you. About what I do with people who are outcasts, nobodies, never voted to be the most successful person of class of whatever, you. Nope, never her. And Jesus says, but I love you. And he changes everything by his love.
first of all, this woman had to believe. She received Christ as Lord. This is where it always begins. Before God uses you, you need to be surrendered to God. You need to give your life. You need to give you to him. Surrender. Then she takes this news and she goes back. And many people believe because of her witness. God chose to use the unusable person by the world's standards. Then he changed her city. You think anybody that morning, if they would have done a survey? Don't you like seeing surveys and polls? Now the polls are saying that, and they end up being so wrong. Like, who were they asking? Where they, what rock did they go under to find people? Where, what happened there? If you would have polled this town, how many of you think the greatest used woman of this city, who would you think that's going to be? Write her name down. Who would have put that woman's name down? I don't think anybody, I don't think she would have put their name down. But Jesus said, I'm going to use you. Ultimately, many more believed because she led them to Jesus and they met him for themselves. And this is our challenge, beloved. I count my life not as valuable. I'm not the big deal. It's not all about me. When we come to this place of humbling ourselves before the Lord, this is where he elevates. He says, now I can use you. Because it's not about you. I don't have to use you. None of us. He doesn't have to use me. He doesn't have to use you. He wants to. But it's that old invitation, come. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest for your souls. But you must come. You must come to Christ. You too sings the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's a lot of people that can identify with that song. That song. Searching. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. Still haven't found relationship, another relationship, this job, quit that job, another job, oh, live in this city, live in that city, on vacation here, on there, all these different things, and I haven't found what I'm searching for. That's because, as Augustine put it, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. It's the only place you're going to find rest. There's always something in us that says, I'm not quite home. I'm not really the way I should be. Something isn't quite complete yet. That's true. And that will take place when we see Jesus face to face and it's all completed and we are at home. So can I just take this woman's testimony and ask you, where are you at? In this account, none of us are Jesus. We might be the disciples, Easily look down our nose, easily question God. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why did I go over here? Why did I do that? Why did I do the other? And Jesus is like, shh, you're missing the harvest going on here, boys. Did you see the woman? Oh, yeah, we saw the woman. What's she doing here? No, you didn't see the woman the way I saw the woman. You saw somebody of a different gender, you saw somebody of a different race a different ethnicity, and you dismissed her. Nuisance, bother. 
I saw someone that I made in my image and I'm going to go shed my blood and let my body be broken for her sin debt all those failed relationships, all that immorality, all of that sin, her debt's going on my account, Jesus. And my righteousness is going to be credited to her account in the great exchange. Maybe you see yourself in the woman. What a testimony she is to the love of God. It's not what you say about you. It's not what others say about you that matters. So what does God say about you? And if he says, you're in Christ, then can I just ask you the question that I really expect you to work out? What does it matter what other people think about you? What does it matter if they like or don't like what you do, what you post? If the Lord is honored, if the Lord, there's the condition, is pleased, then who else's opinion matters? Really? Do you know him? Have you been changed by his love? Who do you need to bring this message to? Let's stand together. Praise team, you come. Father, thank you for the love of Christ. Thank you that there is no one beyond your reach while we are living Thank you that you are merciful and gracious. Thank you that you do not repay us according to what our sins deserve. But you died and rose again so that anyone, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in you alone will be given life that never ends. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for this woman that you used to change her entire community. Use us in this way, Lord. In Jesus' name and for his glory alone we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.